Hi, Josh. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to episode, oh my god, 20 of uh, Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. Well, to switch things up for episode 20, should we start our news roundup with some good news for labor? I think we should. I have talked before on this podcast about the fight of the New York State Nurses Association and 1199 SEIU and a bunch of community supporters to keep open the Long Island College Hospital. And today, in a very interesting twist on this whole fight, the judge who originally approved SUNY Downstate, the operator of the hospital, taking over the hospital in the first place, has vacated her order allowing SUNY to take over the hospital, claiming that they were doing so in bad faith and that their behavior in recent months has essentially proved that they had no intention of operating a hospital in the first place and that they perhaps took it over with the intent of selling it off for parts and luxury condos. The most fascinating part of this is this is not because of a lawsuit that was filed by anybody. This was the judge reading news reports and seeing stories of protests and going down to the hospital herself and seeing ambulances being diverted, seeing the security guards. And in her um, her court order, she called this a travesty. Um, and she basically took the hospital away from SUNY Downstate, ruling that it needs to stay open as a community hospital and suggesting um, other operators for it. We don't know exactly what this means yet. There is a court conference scheduled for this Thursday. Sadly, we are recording this earlier than Thursday. What? But... We will no doubt have more on this right now. I would just like to say that I am very, very proud specifically of the work that the New York State Nurses Association has done, um, along with community members, to highlight the importance of this hospital to particularly the underserved community of Red Hook, um, and that this really shows the power of unions working in the community doing their organizing in the community's best interests, not just in the narrow interest of the workplace. And amazing things are occasionally possible. Not to worry, we will have plenty of bad news in our featured interview today with Daniel Denver about Philadelphia public school budget Armageddon. But first, in the good news for belabored listeners who love bad news category... Warehouse Workers United announced an incremental victory this week at a warehouse in Riverside County, what organizers refer to as a Walmart-controlled warehouse. This is a situation I've written about in the past where there are a number of layers of subcontracting. Here, workers got in touch with regulators about alleged issues with wage theft and say that the company responded by attempting to lay off the entire workforce. There was a very rare injunction issued by a judge to prevent the company from eliminating the entire workforce. What was announced this week is that these workers are, according to warehouse organizers, going to receive a wage increase of about 60% due to the removal of one of the layers of subcontracting. That by making their employment one level more direct, they're going to have their wages increased by more than half. This is against the backdrop of this ongoing legal fight. It's an example of one of the ways in which workers are confronting this who's the boss problem, where they're subject to one company's business model while legally being employed by somewhere else, someone else. 
And it's for these workers who've been in this fight for a long time, who again allege that they were threatened with en masse losing their job for having contacted the government about violations of the law. This is progress. Well, from good news, progress, something, to, well, not really bad news. Um, this week, the Alliance for a Greater New York, in partnership with uh, Caring Across Generations, released a new study looking at the working conditions of the mostly very low-wage um, home care workforce. So this study looked at workers from workers who are certified as, as healthcare professionals to workers who are simply domestic workers um, hired privately. It found that, interestingly, that many of the caregivers and the care consumers found that their needs were overlapping, um, that consumers, too, expressed concern for low wages, which often they do not set. Often those wages are set by the state. They're paid through Medicaid or Medicare. Or when they are not paid through the state, they're paid often through private insurance companies. Um, Consumers who had complaints about quality of care often could be attributed to the fact that these are very low-paid workers. Um, Nine in ten of domestic workers are in less than $25,000 a year. Six in ten of certified home health care workers still earn less than $25,000 a year. These are people who often don't have any access to things like wage and hour laws that work around the clock, that work in somebody's home well away from any sort of protection or oversight. Um, Michelle Chen has an excellent piece on this report up at In These Times, um, looking at the recommendations both for improving care that these workers provide and also improving pay and working conditions for them. Um, These are the fastest growing jobs in the country and they need to be good jobs. Um, As I've quoted Molly Neffel saying on this podcast about a million times, our treatment of care workers shows how we value not only those workers, but also the people that they care for. This week we saw a new strike by H2B guest workers. We've seen in recent years the National Guest Worker Alliance pull off a series of strikes by generally small groups of workers either on J-1, supposed cultural exchange visas, or coming through the H-2B visa program, where workers have gone on strike generally not to shut down the company that they're working for, but to expose alleged extreme illegal abuses and to create pressure for both change by the employer or the other companies in the supply chain and by the government of the U.S. and in some cases elsewhere. So in this case, these are workers in Florida who were cleaning luxury condos in the Emerald Coast. They held up as evidence $0 checks, as in other situations like we've seen, for example, in the case of McDonald's J-1 workers. These workers say they sometimes made negative money because of the deductions that were being required of them for housing and the the alleged theft of legally required wages. These workers are going on strike with demands against a number of targets. So they're on strike against their employers, demanding money they say they're owed, including allegedly illegal recruitment fees. At the same time, their strike is also meant to put pressure against immigration and customs enforcement to not deport them, to not allow immigration status to be used as a weapon against workers for speaking up. 
And they also have, from their press conference Monday on, made a point of targeting pressure also at two members of the U.S. Congress, who so far they have not seen come to a position in favor of comprehensive immigration reform that includes protections for guest workers. And so we see something that is arguably some combination of a political strike and a strike against these employers, again, by a group of workers who are particularly vulnerable and say that our current immigration policy has been used particularly to get even more from them for even less than the minimum standard under U.S. law. Don't say what you don't like if you just let shit pass back. Don't say that you are radical if you ain't felt that life. Rebel against them if they try to take your rights. But stay at home and join okay but with minute rights. We turn now to our interview with an outstanding journalist, Dan Denver, friend of the podcast. Dan is a reporter for Philadelphia City Paper, where he regularly breaks news about education, labor, criminal justice, and other issues in Philadelphia that are national issues as well. You can also see his work intermittently at Salon, The Atlantic, and elsewhere, and we're very glad to have him on the podcast. So Dan, to start with, what is the crisis facing Philly schools at this point? Who are the culprits here, and and where is this headed? Well, there's always been a two-tiered system of public education in the system with uh, segregated districts educating uh, largely low-income non-white students getting the short end of the stick. So it's, it's nothing new that a school district like Philadelphia's is, is, is underfunded and not getting the resources it needs to adequately educate its students. But currently it is in the worst of its many recurrent crises in recent years. Um, there is a $304 million budget gap, which has which in June prompted the layoff of nearly 3,000 teachers, counselors, aides, and other staff. This after 24 schools were closed. Um, And what's happening right now is that the School Reform Commission, which is a state-controlled body that has controlled Philadelphia public schools since 2001, is using that crisis, which was created by the state, to break the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, basically. Um, Last Thursday, they suspended portions of the school code that will basically allow the district to hire back staff uh, to the extent that they've been able to cover small portions of the budget gap uh, outside of the seniority system and to suspend the pay steps, which is the graduated pay structure where teachers get graduated raises based on their length of service. Those are both goals that... Uh, Superintendent William Height has announced that he would like to accomplish in contract negotiations. The PFT, the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, is in currently engaging in a uh, in negotiations. Their current contract in- expires at the end of this month. So there's a sense that those temporary conditions that they imposed last Thursday are really an effort to permanently impose new terms that they cannot reach at the bargaining table. <sighs> So I remember years ago when uh, Mayor Nutter first ran to be mayor of Philadelphia that he was very proud of the fact that he was the only candidate with kids in Philly public schools. Now, obviously, the state has control over Philadelphia schools, but um, what responsibility does the mayor have? What's the sort of tension between state and city politics here? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question, Sarah. Um, you know, it, it is clear that Governor Corbett, Corbett, Tom Corbett, and the Republican-controlled legislature are the chief perpetrators of the current crisis, given the nearly $1 billion um, that was cut a couple of years back from state education funding statewide. Um, but that said, the School Reform Commission does have two seats appointed by the mayor, a minority on the five-member board, um, but and, and they have been appointed by Mayor Nutter, and they have consistently voted in a block with Tom Corbett's representatives on the board. Yeah. The sense, very broad sense among public education advocates in Philadelphia is that Mayor Nutter is not an ally, that he has very conspicuously failed to lead in criticizing Corbett for the disaster that he's wrought in Philadelphia, um, and that that, in combination with his vocal support for, you know, so-called school reform initiatives, that, that he's very, not really sympathetic to the pain, frustration, and anger that's currently pretty widespread among teachers, students, parents uh, in the city. So I remember writing when I was still at Alternet back in 2012 about Corbett and several other governors who were slashing school funding, particularly in poor districts, at the same time as they were ramping up funds for prison and police. Um, talk about this trend in the context of Philadelphia in particular and the school-to-prison pipeline, as in what happens to these poor kids when their schools are gutted and the only place to go is jail. Yeah, well... well. Pennsylvania's prison population, which stands at about 50,000 people, draws disproportionately from Philadelphia um, and disproportionately from Philadelphia's poor black communities. Um, and a lot of advocates are, uh, are highlighting what they see as a, a connection between a declining school budget under Governor Corbett and a uh, and remember the gap in Philadelphia is $304 million and a a new prison being built in Montgomery County, just outside the city limits, which will, which will house many, many, many uh, people from from Philadelphia. And the Secretary of Corrections has actually, you know, received um, some credit from prison reformers for embracing some initiatives to downsize the prison population. But um, prison critics and, and public education advocates are far from convinced that the new prison construction at Greaterford. Uh, which was initiated under Democratic Governor Ed Rendell and was, and was reapproved under Tom Corbett is a reasonable use of, of um, taxpayer dollars, given how many of those dollars have been cut from, from public schools. You broke news of some polling that was conducted for the governor who, along with seemingly all of the highest profile anti-union Republican governors, is up for re-election next year. The polling suggested that, given his unpopularity on the education issue and the extent to which he gets blamed, understandably, for the bad state of education funding, that he could turn this around if he could make the teachers' union into the boogeyman. Since then, we've seen this move that many have criticized as essentially holding hostage federal fund funding until teachers concede on issues like seniority. Is that working in terms of his attempt to get the public back on his side, and is, is that a maneuver that he's going to be able to sustain? Well, just to kind of put it all in the, the broader context, there was the $304 million budget gap, and the district decided that it was going to ask for 
$60 million from the city of Philadelphia, $120 million um, from uh, the state of Pennsylvania, and $130 million in labor con concessions, mostly from the Philadelphia Federations of, of Teachers. So just as a starting point, the district began by asking for, for more money in, in salary concessions from Philadelphia public school teachers who already make 19% less than some suburban counterparts um, as, as a starting point. Um, and so amidst this, this effort uh, on the school district's part to secure these funds, and as teachers and students and public education advocates in Philadelphia and around the state were, were mobilizing to put pressure on the legislature and Governor Corbett to find the necessary funds um, to at the very least keep Philadelphia schools from entering the sort of apocalyptic level crisis that it's now uh, coming into. Um, during this period, uh, I uncovered a poll that was conducted by a prominent Republican firm at the behest of an organization called PENCAN, uh, which is the state chapter in Pennsylvania of a national self-described school reform group, one of a bevy of these organizations that have sprung up in recent years to advocate for charter school expansion, to advocate for ending seniority, to advocate uh, for basing teacher evaluations on standardized test scores, that kind of entire agenda. And these groups have been funded by, by major philanthropies like the Gates Foundation and uh, have a number of, of prominent wealthy backers. But so, so Penn can uh, commission this poll a uh, prominent Republican firm conducted it, and it was it was, it was secret and, and given to the, the governor. And what it advised him, it said, Governor Corbett, you have very low approval ratings. Uh, <laughs> um, <you> are, <laughs> How low exactly? <laughs> um, I don't remember off the top of my head, um, okay. but they're I think I think they're in the I think they're in the low the low thirties maybe Ooh. or high twenties. Ooh, um, and people hold you responsible for the sorry state of public education in Pennsylvania and for the crisis state of public education in Philadelphia. People view your education policies highly unfavorably. Um, but while people do like teachers and actually have a favorable view of the union, we believe that our polling shows that you should exploit the Philadelphia school's funding crisis, which was created by his budget cuts. The poll doesn't say that, but that's an important point. You should exploit that funding crisis as an opportunity to attack the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers and build your kind of sorry state re-election <laughs> campaign around a war with, with, with the teachers union. Um, and now that does seem to be being played played out as as we speak. So you mentioned the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, one of several unions that represent workers in the schools. Full disclosure, one of those unite here is the union in a local that I worked with representing what were then called noontime aides in the schools. What's your take on how the various unions here have worked with each other, with community groups, with parents and students in terms of approaching this crisis? I mean, to what extent have they met this challenge and is there anything that, that is or isn't working so far in their response? Well, you know, just to start 
out teachers and staff, including the new time aides, um, who do really important work making, you know, playgrounds and lunchrooms safe, um, uh, and, 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 and parents and students. And there's there's a, a lot of anger right now. There's been a lot of anger for at least the last two years, if not longer. And that anger is really coming to a head now, and I think people are prepared to take you know, strong actions to ensure that Philadelphia schools can escape this crisis. That said, it is, to me, unclear whether publication advocates and, and the sort of institutionally strongest point in that is always labor. Labor unions are the ones with offices and staff and kind of institutional presence to a degree that, that students and parents just don't, don't have. I'm, I'm unsure whether the Philadelphia Federation of Teachers, which is barred by the 2001 state takeover law from striking and does not have a, a recent history of grassroots mobilization, I am unsure whether they have the strength or strategy to meet the enormous challenge, the enormous challenge that they're facing right now. Um, there have, this summer, the last year or so has seen the organization of the Philadelphia Coalition Advocating Public Schools, which is, um, in, for Philadelphia, really a path-breaking alliance between labor, between teachers, students, parents, really coming around to, to fight for fair funding. And uh, I know the PFT has been doing more community-based outreach this summer and in prior months than, than ever before. And I know that student activists at the Philadelphia Student Union and Youth United for Change were instrumental in a massive student walkout in the spring. So there, there are actions being taken. Um, what I don't know is whether is really what sort of actions will need to be taken to fix this mess and, and if they will be taken. Yeah, it's a really big mess. Sorry for being a downer. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... it's... It's understandable. Related to that last question and sort of an interesting place to probably wrap this up is that Chicago has gotten a ton of attention for its schools crisis. Um, Philadelphia has sort of received a little bit less, especially considering how bad things actually are there. To what extent do you think that this is related to the leadership of a strong media savvy union like the CTU in Chicago versus the comparatively less, as you said, you know, grassroots activist union in Philadelphia? Well, I mean, I think, um, I think there's no question that the two unions are, are very different types of unions and that even, you know, even if PFT members wanted to engage in some sort of strike action, uh, you know, in, in violation of the state takeover law and press that in court or just press that politically, which I think is a, there's a small possibility that might happen, I believe. Yeah. Even if they were to take that step, the PFT has not built the same sort of, um, you know, painstakingly one power at the rank and file level and at the community union alliance level that allowed them to mount such a powerful strike with such overwhelming community and parent and student support last year. So that work has not been done to the same extent by any means in, in, in Philadelphia, 
which doesn't mean that the necessary action can't and won't be taken. It just means that time is is very short for opponents of the doomsday budget and the whole kind of program of privatizing and dismantling the Philadelphia public school system. We'll link to Dan Denver's work online. Again, all the listeners of Descent's Belabored Podcast should certainly check out his work. This is the point in the podcast where we say, Arg! I wish I had written that. Sarah, if humankind were to go extinct and you had to leave perhaps an etching in a cave that would let our future alien visitors know what work of writing you had been most jealous of this past week, what would that be? So, speaking of friends of the podcast, um, Julia Carey Wong, a Unite Here organizer that I actually met through Josh, um, has a lovely piece up at Salon this week about what feminism could learn from the picket line. Um, Her piece was prompted by a conversation that was started on Twitter about sort of white middle class liberal feminism and its failures when it comes to issues of race and class. Julia writes eloquently of the conflict sometimes between true solidarity, which often requires people to step out of the spotlight, to be just one voice among many, to listen, make room for others, and this kind of individualist ethos that has infiltrated some brands of feminism, as I've discussed here on this podcast before, maybe most recently in talking about Madeline Schwartz's piece, which I was also very arg jealous of. Arg overlap. (laughs) Solidarity is, is a word that we talk about a lot in labor, but it also often seems to have lost much of its meaning. But Julia powerfully captures it here. Um, I actually want to read a few of her words to you. She writes, No one person makes a picket line, but by showing up, I can take its number from 37 to 38 or from 999 to 1000. No one voice creates a roar, but by chanting, I can amplify the volume. My value to the line is in being the body that walks behind the person in front of me and in front of the person behind me. My value is in being present and unremarked upon, a part of the broader whole. At Labor Notes, a frequent source of ARG quality journalism on labor, Han Tong, who works with a worker center in Guangdong, writes about recent strikes by workers at Foxconn. Han argues that the media in the West has not paid as much attention to strikes by workers as to mass suicides by workers at Foxconn and gives a couple examples of forms of struggle we've seen there, including workers demanding additional hours, something that ties into a a frequent topic of discussion on the Belabored podcast. One of these ended, according to Tong, in an agreement by management a sensible agreement to engage in some kind of negotiation. Again, keep in mind, as we've discussed on the podcast, that these forms of militancy have to take place outside of the officially sanctioned unions available at Foxconn. Those negotiations at the time of this article so far appeared not to have happened. This is part of what Eli Friedman, whose work we've discussed on the podcast in the past, has identified as a a really undercovered wave of strikes whose disposition and and ultimate trajectory remains very much to be seen. But this piece of labor notes 
is an important one in noting stories that often get mixed stories that often get missed in the Western media discussion of what's going on at Foxconn. That brings us to the end of episode 20 of Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. Um, for Belabored listeners, I would like to invite you on semi-short notice to join me and Sarah Jayaraman of um, the Restaurant Opportunity Center to discuss her book, Behind the Kitchen Door, at Firedog Lake's Book Salon. Um, this is an online discussion. It happens at firedoglake.com on Saturday afternoon this week from 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, again, I will put a link to that at our website and come along, ask Saru some questions, ask me some questions, bring your experiences of working in restaurants. We'd love to talk to you. And those who listened to our discussion last week will perhaps appreciate that we at the Belabored Podcast will be taking a, a spot of leisure time ourselves. We will not be recording a podcast next week, but we will return to you exuberant in September and in the meantime we hope you'll tweet us with your story ideas, topics for explainers, reactions to the podcast and experience of work and of belabored. Talk to you in two weeks. This life is hard so hard I must go. Hey twin the fact, hell no, we can't go. Society has its limits.